I am recording the class I taught on April 7th again. This class is called Heart for the Lost, and this is the first hour. Um, I'm recording this from home because I forgot to record uh, the session when I taught it. So hopefully uh, you'll get the added benefit, uh, those of you that are listening to this, of a little bit more clear uh, delivery of this t- session, and uh, I hope that it's just as powerful as um, when I taught it in person. My goal in teaching this class is to entrust something to you. Um, if you've ever, you know, shared your heart with someone, really, what we call bearing your heart, there's always a fear when you do that that it will not be received. And one of the worst things we could do when we're talking about God's heart for the lost is to talk about these things and, and hear them and then just forget about them. I hope that uh, the things that I share through this lesson um, are things that stick with you for life. You know, when God reveals his heart to us, it, it's a really big deal. It's not something he does casually. You know, God's heart is really the most tender, biggest heart in the universe. And so he, he shares that with us. He trusts us with his heart. It's a really big deal. Um, but we need to keep that in mind as we go through this and go through these, these really essential principles. One of the first things I want to start with is the parable of the prodigal son. This may also better be called the parable of the father's heart. The reason why is... Let me ask this, in the parable of the prodigal son, who is it that has actually lost the most? Who in the parable loses the most? And a lot of times we focus on the son, and that's okay, that's right. But I believe the truth is that this parable really is about the father who lost his son. I'm going to read an excerpt from a devotional by Eli Gotro. You've probably heard his name several times already. The uh, former campus director for uh, Chi Alpha at Sam Houston State University. This is what he says. He says, several years ago, my family and I attended a conference on a university campus. One afternoon, our four-year-old went missing from the student center where I had been working. As it became apparent that my little girl was lost, my heart sank, and with each passing moment, I began to feel more and more nauseous. Words cannot describe the depth of anguish and despair I felt that day. With the help of university police, we frantically searched all four floors of of that building, eventually spilling out into the parking lot and covering the four city blocks of the campus. She was completely lost. G. Campbell Morgan wrote in his book, The Great Physician, It is well now to remind ourselves that when we speak of a lost man or woman, the final emphasis in our thinking should not be on the lost person, but on the one who has lost that person. When we speak of a man being lost, do we think more about his suffering or of the suffering of God? Eli Gotro continues, When the devil has kidnapped a child of God, it is God who hurts the deepest, who suffers most. His heart is broken as he can foresee the inevitable consequence of lost relationship, which is eternal separation. When I remember the way I felt about my one lost child, I cannot begin to imagine the father's exponential pain over the multitude of his lost children from every corner of the earth. 
When my daughter was lost, I wanted everyone everywhere to drop what they were doing and help me find her. It was inconceivable to me that anyone, especially those I loved most, would be able to rest until she was safely found. After the longest hour of my life, in which every passing minute felt like an eternity, we found our daughter. The moment I saw her, I had an instant understanding of the joy in heaven that erupts when a lost person is reunited with the Father. I cried out with a happiness and could not stop hugging her. The intensity of the darkness that had accompanied her loss was matched only by the elation I felt when I held her in my arms again. So we see that the parable of the prodigal son um, is really about the father's heart. It's really about a heart for the lost. Something that I think is misunderstood fairly often is when we talk about the anger of God. Um, it's, I've heard it especially recently said that God is never angry. And I do not actually find a precedent for that statement in Scripture. In fact, I find the opposite, that in the Psalms it says that God is angry with the wicked every day. How do we understand and come to terms with the anger of God towards those who are lost? I think one of the best ways to do so is to think of a father who has a child, and that child goes out into the street to play. And the father warns the child and says, do not ever, ever go out there again. Do not ever play in the street. And shortly after that, maybe a day or two later, the child runs back out into the street. This time, a car comes by and narrowly misses the child swerves out of the way just in time the child is alive the father sees this incident take place runs out after his child and he's furious he's angry he's so upset at his at his son he's upset at him why because he almost lost his son forever what was lost was almost lost irrevocably to where he would never receive him again, right? And so his anger actually comes from his love. Love, when expressed over something that's lost, often does and is anger. It becomes anger. It is, it is a form of wrath. And we see that it makes sense that God is angry with the wicked. Why? Because they are in danger of being lost from him forever. Now we need to ask ourselves as we're talking about having a heart for the lost, how should I look at the lost? What is my view of the lost to be? I want to read a quote from Francis Schaeffer, who was a theologian and uh, just an incredible articulate speaker on behalf of Christianity in the last century. He said this, Genesis 9, verse 6, and James 3, verse 9, both confirm explicitly that the image of God has not been lost at the fall. It has been distorted, but not destroyed. Even fallen human beings, therefore, continue to be God's image simply by who they are. Their lives have infinite value. So the first point we should come to see the lost as is 
even as a sinner, man is still infinitely valuable. Even as a sinner, man is still infinitely valuable. I have friends that work for Grace, uh, the church that does a lot of evangelism on campus. You've probably interacted with them at some point going to and from class. One of my friends said that they have a motto, they have a saying, a maxim, their own maxim, that they use and they quote to each other frequently. They say this, there are only two things in this world that are eternal, the word of God in the souls of men. We see that this incredible thing that man, because he is made in the image of God and because his soul is made to last forever, after death, there's an immortality of the soul. There will be a resurrection of all beings, all human beings, either unto life or unto damnation. But the soul of every man and woman in this world is infinitely valuable. You cannot put a price on the, on the worth and the measure of the value of a human soul. So even as a lost person, it's important that we understand that they're not, they're not subhuman. They're not things that are to be despised. They are people still. And yes, as Francis Schaeffer says, the image has been distorted. It has not been destroyed, nor will it ever be. And that's why people that are lost are, are worth finding. It's worth it to have a heart for the lost because of their value, their intrinsic worth, just by virtue of who they are as made in the image of God. Secondly, we see that man is guilty, not helpless. This comes from Charles Finney, one of the greatest evangelists of all time. Um, and he, he came to discern this truth in, early on in his ministry, and it became something that he, he stuck with his whole life and his whole teaching and all of his ministry kind of um, really centered around this truth that we are all responsible for being lost. There's no one in this world who's lost by accident. Everyone is really to blame for their own lostness. There's no one else that you can blame. There's nothing else that you can blame. And this is in direct contrast to the way our culture thinks about what it calls our brokenness or our uh, dysfunctions. You know, it always labels sin as something other than sin. Um, we, we blame our environment. We blame our DNA. We blame um, social influences. We blame social constructs. And nowhere is this taught more prevalently and pervasively than in the liberal arts college at Colorado State University, which is where I, I got my degree uh, in English. And so I had uh, quite a few classes that taught very emphatically that man is not to blame for his condition. <laughs> 
they would say that man is helpless. And I remember when I took LTC back way back in the day when it was two times a week, Tuesday and Thursday morning, I believe it was before 8 a.m. If you can imagine that, they did supply us with coffee, which was wonderful. And we looked forward to those classes, believe me. We loved LTC. And I remember Duncan Chance, who is now the director of Chi Alpha at UNC, wrote on our whiteboard in that, because we used to meet in the Clark building. He wrote on the whiteboard this phrase, man is guilty, not helpless. And somehow at the end of the, that LTC lesson, Duncan forgot to erase that phrase. And so it remained on the whiteboard. Well, I happened to have a class in that exact same room later that afternoon. And there was a, a, a maybe a map or a screen that had been pulled down and had concealed this phrase written on the whiteboard. And my professor at the beginning of class went and rolled up the screen. She pulled it down and it, it rolled up and it revealed this phrase. And she stood back, really taken back by this statement. And she thought, huh, that's interesting. <laughs> It, it, it's, it's really interesting because it rings with truth. And it's a truth that we need to understand. I want to share with you a story from Malcolm Muggeridge. He was a pretty well-known journalist about 50 years ago. Um, and he shares and relates a story. Really, it's his own story of how he came to faith in Christ. He was working as a journalist in India and he left his residence one evening to go to a nearby river for a swim. As he entered the water across the river, he saw an Indian woman from the nearby village who had come to have her bath. Muggeridge impulsively felt the allurement of the moment, and temptation stormed into his mind. He had lived with this kind of struggle for years, but had somehow fought it off in honor of his commitment to his wife Kitty. On this occasion, however, he wondered if he could cross the line of marital fidelity. He struggled just for a moment and then swam furiously toward the woman, literally trying to outdistance his conscience. His mind fed him the fantasy that stolen waters would be sweet, and he swam the harder for it. Now he was just two or three feet away from her, and as he emerged from the water, any emotion that may have gripped him paled into significance when compared with the devastation that shattered him as he looked at her. He said this, she was old and hideous and her skin was wrinkled, and worst of all, she was a leper. This creature grinned at me, showing a toothless mask. The experience left Muggeridge trembling and muttering under his breath. What a dirty, lecherous woman. But then the rude shock of it dawned on him. It was not the woman who was lecherous. It was his own heart. All right, it was the realization. <laughs> Muggeridge had grown up probably his whole life assuming that he was a good man, and that he could be a good man, and that if he wasn't a good man, it was, it was because of circumstances outside his control. But in this event that took place in this river in India, he realized that his heart was leprous. His heart was ugly. He was to blame. And in realizing that he was guilty, that was the revelation necessary for him really to begin to understand who he was. Halbert Maurer, who taught at Yale and Harvard and was the former president of the American Psychological Association, and who was not a Christian, he was a secular man, said this, For several decades, 
we psychologists looked upon the whole matter of sin and moral accountability as a great incubus and acclaimed our liberation from it as epoch-making. But at length we have discovered that to be free in this sense, that is, to have excuse of being sick rather than sinful, is to court the danger of also becoming lost. This danger is, I believe, betokened by the widespread interest in existentialism, which we are presently witnessing. In becoming amoral, ethically neutral, and free, we have cut the very roots of our being, lost our deepest sense of selfhood and identity, and with neurotics themselves, we find ourselves asking, who am I? What is my deepest destiny? What does living mean? Okay, that's a secular psychologist saying, basically, that by removing sin and its definition from psychological vocabulary, we have actually lost ourselves in the process. We've lost what it means to understand who we really are as moral beings with free wills who are responsible for our choices. That's who we are. And the Bible affirms that in every page. And by understanding this truth, we come to realize who we really are. But without it, we lose really what it means fundamentally to be a man or woman. And so in understanding lost people and lostness, we need to keep this in mind that they are guilty and not helpless. You see, you cannot prescribe the cure without the correct diagnosis. Sickness, for instance, is treated with therapy and self-help. It's right to treat a mentally sick patient with counseling. But Christ, look at how he treats. He treats us not as just sick, but as sinful. And he provides sin, a, a remedy for sin in grace and truth. Now, how do we diagnose sinners. I want to look at how can you understand where someone is at correctly in order to apply the right principles to lead them to Christ. We need to understand that there are really three categories that you can place someone in who is a sinner or lost person. The first is the careless sinner. This person has a seared conscience. Okay, First Timothy 4.2 talks about this idea of the seared conscience. If you've ever touched a hot stove, you know that your instinct, your initial reaction is to remove your hand immediately. And the pain is in- immediate. Now let's say you decide, for some reason, to touch that hot stove once again. The pain, once again, is immediate and instant, and your hand automatically withdraws. But let's say you keep touching the hot stove again and again and again. Eventually, there would be a callus which would grow and build up over your skin to the point where you would not feel that hot stove anymore. And so you could go on touching it without any consequence. That is exactly what the Bible says happens to our conscience. When you sin again and again and again, your conscience becomes less and less soft, less and less aware, less and less in tune with, with God to the point where you don't feel like the things you're doing are wrong. You don't feel guilty. You feel like it is okay to live as you're living. Now, it's a process. 
anyone who is in a sinful lifestyle at one point in the beginning of that lifestyle did feel guilty. Inevitably, they felt guilty in the beginning, but over repeated time, over time, repeating that sin and habitually sinning, they have become numb and their conscience is seared. So because of this, they really have no idea anymore that what they're doing is wrong. They really don't care about God. That's why they're called a careless sinner. No concern about God, no concern for his laws, no concern about their own guilt because it's been removed. For these people, um, it's like fishing with, uh, if, if you ever go fishing, fly fishing, you need to use the right lure in order to attract the fish to the surface of the water. And they won't bite the hook or the lure unless you have the correct one. You have to be really careful with certain areas, you know, certain areas that are overfished, certain areas um, where the, the trout, for instance, have become very sensitive to fishermen. You have to be very skilled and very careful with how you fish. You're not just throwing out your line, however it it may be you're you're skillfully landing your line perfectly on the water and in the same way when we're dealing with careless sinners we have to be very careful you have to pick the right times the right windows the right opportunities to discuss who they really are to talk about their lostness to talk about their sin and their guilt and to begin to help their conscience come back to life it's a beautiful thing. The Holy Spirit will resurrect a seared conscience and will renew it. Um, it's actually kind of like a, um, it's kind of like a watch. You know, if you have a watch and it's set to the wrong time, that watch is really not going to help you. But when you take the dial and you reset the watch um, back to the correct time, the exact time that watch is suddenly very helpful. And that's what the Holy Spirit will do with a careless sinner's conscience is he will take it or he will take hers or his and he will uh, awaken it. And so that's the second category of sinner is the awakened sinner. These people are aware of their need for God. They are realizing that God is not only out there, but they actually need him in a sense and they dimly are aware of it. They may barely understand their need for God, but it's beginning to grow. They begin to ask questions about God. This is a sign that someone is awakened, that they, that they ask good questions. They begin to ask hard questions. You know, if God is good, then why is there suffering? Or um, if, if it's true that only Christians are saved, then what happens to those that never hear? Those kind of questions a lot of times may indicate that someone is awakened. Not always, but a lot of times. Um, a person may be awakened in their conscience to God, particularly after some moment of trauma, a death in a family, um, a, a death of a loved one, an illness of a loved one, even a breakup. You know, that's a very typical example in college. Someone will break up, go through uh, an emotional uh, moment of trauma through the breakup and will be awakened to God. 
um, the biggest mistake that you can make with this category of sinner is to assume because they're awakened and because there's an interest for God that they're ready to repent. Uh, this is often not the case. And you could make a really big mistake in trying to lead an awakened sinner to Christ without the necessary conviction of sin that needs to take place in the conscience. And so I want to talk about that as the third category, the convicted sinner. These are sinners that feel the weight of guilt for the first time. Truly, they are beginning to say, I am wrong. And there's a dawning realization inside of them, inside their heart, which is like, oh my goodness, I have really blown it. I am really wrong with God. And there are real consequences and they're beginning to realize that they need to get right with God. But there's a fear that God is not going to receive that person. They become anxious to find an answer. They feel condemned by the law. And the worst thing you could do with this person who is a convicted sinner is try to lessen their guilt by saying, it doesn't really matter that you feel bad or you shouldn't feel bad. You know, any way that you would try to assuage that guilt or give them an out would be so fatal to them becoming born again. And so I want you to commit yourself. If you meet a person who is a convicted sinner, you lead someone who is a careless sinner to become a convicted sinner to make sure that you just affirm what the Holy Spirit is speaking to that person. Did you realize that when you prophesy to someone, it's not the first time they've heard what you're saying. Prophecy is always a reminder of what God has already said. So when you are dealing with a convicted sinner, your, your job really is, is to be like a prophet. You are to prophesy into their life and to simply repeat what the Holy Spirit has already been saying. For instance, if it's a relationship that is ungodly and the Holy Spirit has told that person, you must break up. Guess what you're going to say to your friend, to your small group member who's convicted? You're going to say the same thing. You're going to affirm what the Holy Spirit is saying. And by doing so, you are giving that person the best chance they will ever have to be born again. If you give them an out, if you say, no, you know, maybe, maybe you can uh, remain in this relationship that's ungodly, but you just need to stop um, having sex, you know, but you can, you can stay with, you know, if you tell them any directions that are other than what the Holy Spirit is saying, you really, really risk um, that moment turning into their conviction uh, cooling off and eventually them hardening their hearts worse than ever before. And I've seen it happen enough times to know that it is just utterly tragic and that it's the worst case scenario. So really with a convicted sinner, how should you treat them? You should be really diligent. Unlike the careless sinner where you're trying to pick and choose your time to talk to them and you're trying to be really careful, with a convicted sinner, you want to be consistent. You want to be constantly talking to that person. You want to be having 
if not nightly, regular conversations about God and reminding them of their, their, uh, God's right for them to surrender their life to him, reminding them that they need to surrender, that they need to do whatever the Holy Spirit is asking that person to do. And if you don't know what that is, if you don't know exactly what the Holy Spirit is saying, here's a good way to find out. Find out what that person worships. Whatever it is that is the center of their life, that is the thing the Holy Spirit is going to put his finger on and say, give that to me. Because only I have a right to be the center of your life. He's saying that to that person. Only I have a right to your heart. No one else has a right. No one else. Nothing else. And because of his intrinsic value, God alone gets to be God (laughs) to that person. And God alone deserves worship and is worthy of worship. And so he's going to ask that person to give up whatever their pet idol or the thing is that they worship. And if you want to discern what they worship, just listen to what they talk about the most. We naturally talk most about what we love most. What we worship in our hearts, what we truly center our lives around is the thing that we talk most about. Isn't that interesting? You can discern that pretty quickly in conversation with someone. And you'll hopefully know by that point that someone is convicted of sin, uh, what it is that, they, that they're needing to give up. It'll be pretty clear. And you just need to stick with it. Put your finger on it. Help the Holy Spirit. Help him. Be a witness that is true to what he's saying. And trust me, you will see people brought into the kingdom of God. Conversion happens, one, when the sinner obeys God. That's when someone is born again. It's, it's that moment of obedience, whatever it is that the Holy Spirit has asked. Number two, God is requiring one thing. Remember that. It's just one thing. He's not, God isn't asking that person to, to start having a prayer life and read their Bible and go to Outpost regularly and to become faithful and to become a good student. He's not, he's not going to ask that person, the convicted sinner, to do 10 different things. He's just going to ask one, and that is going to be the center. He's wanting the center of their life, the center of their heart. Once he's got that, that person will naturally obey in every other area. Next, obedience will result in full surrender. And finally, number four, evidence of conversion is that the sinner no longer has a controversy with God. They're no longer bringing up things like, well, if God is good, then why this or like, I, I, can, I, I just have a hard time believing in God because of da-da-da-da-da. There's no longer those kind of statements coming from them. You see just a peace in their heart toward God. That is a sure evidence that someone has been born again. The controversy between them and God has ceased. I'm going to look next at Jesus' argument to the religious leaders of his day of why he, why Jesus had a heart for the lost. Believe it or not, the religious leaders in their religious mindset, in the Jewish mindset of their day, thought lost people were not to be saved. Believe it or not, they, they did not really believe in interacting with the lost. They did not want to cross paths with the lost. They thought that their righteousness depended on their separation from the unrighteous. 
And so their whole theology, their whole worldview prohibited them from having any compassion on the lost whatsoever. It's into that world that Jesus steps in and he creates quite a stir because he has such a heart for the lost and such compassion for the lost. And he gives three reasons to them on three different occasions in the Gospels. The first we find is in Luke chapter 5, verse 30. We could call this the professional reason. You see, the Pharisees were religious by profession. It was their full-time job. Their occupation was to be Pharisees. And the interesting thing is Jesus appeals to them on their own grounds, on their own thinking, by saying, I too have a profession, but my profession is to be a physician. Now we all know, it's a matter of fact, that a physician is only a good physician if he is treating the sick. If a physician is spending time with those who are healthy and only spending time with those who have no need of treatment, he is a bad physician. So if he is going to be a good physician, if Jesus is going to excel in his profession, he is going to be with the lost. That's why in Luke it says, um, I've come for sinners, right? To heal the sick for the healthy have no need of a physician. Luke 7 verse 36 describes what God gains from reaching the lost. You see, the Pharisees loved gain. They loved the gain that they acquired through their religion. They loved gaining wealth. They, they were men who were all about gain. And Jesus said, once again, he appeals to them on their own grounds and in terms that they would understand He says that the lost have the most to offer back to God because the amount that you love God is in proportion to the amount that you have been forgiven. Or in other words, the amount that you realize God has forgiven you. you The more that you understand his mercy in contrast to your sinfulness, the more affection and longing and desire your heart will have for God. That is a fact of nature. That is how we are wired. That, there's no getting around it. If you think that you didn't really need God and you weren't really that bad of a sinner and you have a low view of his mercy, you will have little love for God. The third argument Jesus uses is from Luke chapter 15. We could call this the natural argument because here Jesus appeals to them in the most natural sense. He describes the three occasions of something or someone being lost. First with a coin, excuse me, first with a sheep that is lost and a shepherd that goes and leaves the 99 to find the one. Secondly, with a coin that's lost and the woman who sweeps her whole house until she finds it and rejoices. She brings her neighbors in to rejoice that she found her coin. And finally, the parable of the prodigal son closes out those three um, and describes the father and his joy over the return of his lost son. So what Jesus is saying in these parables is, look, we all know what it feels like to lose something. Like, I hate losing something. I lose my mind when I lose something. Um, Really to an unhealthy extent, (laughs) 
I hate, hate losing things. And the, the more valuable something is that I lose, um, the more determined I am to find it. And so Jesus is saying, look, you guys all know what it feels like to lose something. And you know what it feels like to find something and the joy that you have. So how much more should, should we be seeking the lost ones, the lost people who have been lost from the Father? How much more should we be seeking after them if we know what it feels like to lose something and to find it? Because the value, again, intrinsic value of that person means that them being lost is worse than anything else you could possibly lose. And the joy that you'll experience in finding that person and restoring them back into relationship with God is greater than any joy you could ever have because it's proportionate to the lostness. Isn't that amazing? Now, discipleship, I want to say this, discipleship is the only way to effectively reach the lost. We have to understand that there's no one-size-fits-all approach. That reaching the lost and having a heart for the lost requires relationship. It says in Isaiah, the prophet, that all like sheep have gone astray. And there's an interesting truth that we have all gone astray uniquely. You were lost once in a way which was totally unique to you. No one has ever quite been lost in the same way that you have. And so Jesus never adopts the same approach twice. To the Samaritan woman at the well, he tells her everything about her life. But to Zacchaeus, it's a simple invitation to dine with him. They're not, they're, you know, there's no program. There's no method. There's no pattern. It's beautiful. It's relational. It's one-on-one. It's individual contact. Jesus recognizes every individual. He recognizes each is a unique case of lostness that like a riddle has only one way of solving it. And he, he just beautifully, majestically, and perfectly in total wisdom knows how to deal with each one of us just right. And so we need to adopt the same approach as well. Two, we need to understand that there's no soul winning without sympathy. I want to relate the story of Elisha the prophet. You'll find this in the book of 2 Kings. There's this interesting account where a woman who really admired him as a prophet uh, became friends with him and would offer him a place to stay. She really had a lot of reverence for him, recognized that he was a man of God. He was really the man of God for that time in Israel when there weren't very many men of God. And eventually this woman's son uh, actually fell sick, uh, probably from heat stroke. Um, We understand from the details of the story, and he has fallen gravely ill. And by the time that Elisha comes to the boy, he has actually already died. Now, we understand in the story that Elisha actually had to come into contact with the dead boy, that his, the way he goes about raising this boy from the dead, which is what happens, is he lays himself across the boy's body. 
And it seems strange. Some of the details in the story seem odd until we understand the spirit, the spiritual application of this story. It is phenomenal. Elisha had to come in contact with a dead boy. In the same way, a dying man is needed to raise dying men. That's from Charles Spurgeon, uh, the, who was known as the Prince of Preachers in the, in the 19th century and the early 20th century in England. He, he preached in London at a church that saw countless thousands of people brought to Christ, and he spent his whole life dedicated to winning souls. He said this, I cannot believe you will ever pluck a brand from the burns, burns without putting your hand near enough to feel the heat of the fire. What he's saying there is you, if you're going to pull something out of the fire, um, you're going to risk getting burned. Or another way of putting it is you are going to feel a death in yourself in order to raise the dead. You are going to have to um, lose your rights and your comfort to undergo the process of receiving a burden from God for that person you're trying to win. And as you are trying to reach that person and you're trying to win them to Jesus and share Jesus with them and unlock the riddle and the mystery of how they are particularly lost. And as you're trying to figure out how how to help them overcome all those hurdles and obstacles that they see in their path in order to becoming a Christian, you will undergo the process of receiving a burden. And that burden will sink deep into your heart and it will overwhelm you. It will, it will depress you at times because you'll get, hopefully, this is my hope for you as a small group leader, you get so close to your small group members and especially those that are lost that it's agony for you. Now, this is good news. What Spurgeon says next, this is good news. Listen to this. He says, when the death that is in you, when, excuse me, when the death that is in your small group members, I'm adding small group members, that wasn't in the original quote. When that death in them alarms, depresses, and overwhelms you, then it is that God is about to bless you. See, it's not until we go through this process of being burdened and sharing really the burden of Jesus, we're sharing in that burden, that compassion for the lost person, that desire for their value to be returned back to God, for them to have the joy of knowing God and for God to receive the joy and the glory of receiving back something that he has lost that is so dear and precious to him. When that burden burns in you and you feel the agony of that and you come in contact with that death, then it is that God is about to bless you. Then it is that you will see uh, people brought into the kingdom. Uh, to illustrate this, I, we were at Fall Salt this last year, and Jacob Casto, who is in my resource group, has a guy in his small group that we've been fighting for about a year and a half. And this guy is really into philosophy, and he was really into science, and he had a lot of what he thought were pretty rational, logical reasons to deny that Christianity is true. And he was really resistant to the gospel for all this time. And at false salt, he came to false salt, and at false salt, I remember praying with such a burden for him that 
Uh, I, I was just, I didn't care about anything else. I didn't care about anything else. I just wanted him to be saved. Like that was my only desire. It just became this all-consuming desire in me. And as I was praying, that's all I could cry out to God in my heart, in my soul, in the depths of who I am is just God save him. Well, it didn't happen that night, but guess what? It did actually happen this semester. We got to watch him really experience a, a new birth and, and a, a reception to Jesus that seemed really impossible a year and a half ago. You have to, in a sense, feel that person's sins as your own. It's like, it's like you just take on that person's problems and their lostness and their sins, and you feel that as if it were your own. And like you even should feel that their wrath is going to be your own. You should, you should share so wholeheartedly in, in empathizing and sympathizing with their lostness that it, it's almost as if it's yours, okay? And I know, that, I'm not saying that you should act as if it is. I'm just saying, just come in such perfect sympathy with that person, with that lost person. Come in such perfect sympathy with them that, that you agonize over their sin when they won't. That you will cry out to God when they won't. When you, you will have a burden for them when they don't care. when you come in contact with them and in the story with Elisha, what we see is as he's laying on the boy's body, the boy begins to warm up and the heat from Elisha's body is transmitted to the boy's body. And I've seen this a lot in small group where a small group leader who is passionate for Jesus and on fire for Jesus will impart some warmth into his or her small group members that are maybe very cold-hearted towards the Lord. They'll, they'll start to come to outposts. They'll start to take notes on Thursday night. They'll start to ask good questions. They'll start to show interest. Remember, we talked about the awakened sinner. An awakening begins to happen. Now, here's what Elisha did in the story. When he noticed the boy was warming up, did he back off and say, ooh, good. You know, it looks like I've done my job. Here is a warm corpse. To present back to the mother. No, of course not. Uh, instead, Elisha became more fervent, more earnest. He gets up and he begins to pace back and forth in the room. And he, what he's doing is he's praying, he's interceding. So when you start to see signs of life, when, there's a, when you're in the nascent stages of someone beginning to experience a new birth, that is your cue to not let up. You should pursue harder in that season than ever before. Do not relax in prayer especially. Prayer is really where you're going to win that person to Jesus. And as you notice that they're, they're beginning to come to life, as you pray and you, like Elisha, pace back and forth and just enter into the agony of prayer, you will find the Holy Spirit come on you in a way that maybe you've never experienced before. David Wilkerson is a, was a pastor. He passed away recently. He was a pastor who led a revival amongst teenagers, teenage gangsters in New York City in the 1950s and 60s. 
you can read his book. It's called The Cross and the Switchblade. And in this incredible account of a real story, this nobody hick country pastor from Pennsylvania got a burden from God for a group of teenagers who um, had committed this atrocious crime. It was so shocking of a crime that it made its way to the front page of Time magazine. And that's where it caught his eye initially. He saw it on this magazine, this story, this cover story of these boys. And he just had such a broken heart for them. He drove to New York City in an attempt to rescue them. (laughs) He didn't know what he was going to do when he got there. And in fact, his lack of understanding ended up helping him. He went to their trial and in an effort to talk to the boys during this really well-publicized trial, um, the judge just saw him approaching the bar and called for um, the bailiff to come and arrest David Wilkerson. And so he got arrested and landed himself on the front cover of a lot of newspapers. And he totally embarrassed himself. I mean, the headline was pastor, uh, you know, arrested at this famous trial, you know, and the, the media just ran with it and mocked him. And his family told him, David, we don't want you ever to do something like that again. Like that was very embarrassing to us and to our reputation. Well, a little bit later, David, he went back to Pennsylvania, went back to his small town church. He just could not shake his burden for these boys and he was he was crying out to God and God said David I want you to go back and he was obedient he went back to New York City Um, he found a different group of boys not related to the trial uh, that were just randomly on the streets because they they were on the streets and they were really uh, addicted to heroin they were just living gang lives uh, lifestyles that were uh, just full of drugs and violence And he began to preach to these young boys and he began to win them to Jesus. And eventually it just exploded, became this revival. Well, during that season, uh, the Lord reminded him of this verse that is actually in one of the Psalms. It says that those who sow in tears will reap a harvest of joy. And he had to sow, sow seeds of tears, meaning in his private time with God in his prayer closet, David Wilkerson was crying for these boys. And as he was crying and sharing the burden of God for them, what was happening is spiritually strongholds were starting to be knocked down and he was starting to reclaim their lives and win them into the kingdom through his anguished praying He delivered a message. I highly recommend you listen to it. It's on YouTube. Before he died, not long before he died, called A Call to Anguish. This is what he says in the sermon. God finds a praying man and baptizes him in anguish. He finds a praying man and he baptizes him in anguish. So when you are starting to fall in love with these lost freshmen, these lost peers, your lost classmates, your lost coworkers, when you, you're starting to get into their lives and they're starting to get into your life and you begin to open up and you begin to know their story, where they've come from and who they are. And you begin to understand 
that they are infinitely valuable and guilty, you will have an opportunity to understand the broken heart of God, which is otherwise known as a heart for the lost. Now, what's cool, I just want to share this to wrap up, is at the end of Elisha's story, the boy opens his eyes. It's really cool. It says it in the narrative. I encourage you to read it in that passage. The child opened his eyes. Smogger bleeding, the best analogy I've ever heard for smogger bleeding is this. Smogger bleeding is like when Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus. And if you recall the story, Jesus goes to the tomb and he tells a group of people standing near the tomb to roll away the stone blocking the entrance to the tomb. Why? So that Jesus can call into the tomb and wake Lazarus back from the dead. But first, that stone had to be removed. That is your job as a smoker. You are one of those unnamed individuals in the story who had to roll away the stone. What is the stone in your future small group members' lives? Um, it could be a number of different things, but whatever that obstacle is, that barrier to them hearing God, that's your first order of business. Remove it. Help them remove it. Help get it out of their way. Help compassionately, lovingly, help them overcome those barriers. Then what happens next in the story is Lazarus walks out of the tomb. He's alive, but there's something more to be done. He is still wrapped in grave clothes. And he was embalmed, meaning he cannot see Jesus. And what happens next is the men who helped roll away the stone now must come and help unwrap the grave clothes and the embalmment around his eyes so that Lazarus can see Jesus. Just as the boy with Elisha opened his eyes after being dead, so Lazarus opened his eyes. And there had to be an uncovering of his eyes. There had to be a removal of that veil. And that is what small group bleeding is. Small group bleeding is you removing the veil so that they can see Jesus for the first time. So that when they look, they can say, like the blind man that Jesus heals, I once was blind, but now I can see. We are going to reach this campus only by one way. It is only one way, by reaching the lost. It is not by recruiting more Christians into our ministry. There is only one way. We must reach the lost. And in order to do so, let us have a heart for the lost. Let me give you just a really quick practical on how to do this. Get your hands on a book written by somebody who won souls. Get your hands on a copy of The Cross and the Switchblade. Get your hands on a copy of The Soul Winner by Charles Spurgeon. Get your hands on anything by Charles Finney. Get your hands on anything um, by these great soul winners or about these great soul winners and just begin to read what they said. 
Because the surest and quickest way to become a soul winner is to walk in their footsteps. If you want to know how to do something well, read the people who did it the best. And we, we know some of them. So if you have any questions about who that is, feel free to come and find me and I will let you know.